Oblate School of Theology is a Catholic graduate school that provides theological education for the Church's mission and ministry in the world. Inspired by the charism of the missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate, Oblate School of Theology educates, forms, and renews men and women to preach the gospel to the most abandoned. OST prepares Catholic priests, deacons, seminarians, non-Catholic clergy, women religious, and lay ministers through the integration of pastoral experience and theological study. Visit ost.edu to learn more about program options. That's ost.edu. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Good to be with you, Ashley. Hello. How was your uh, Memorial Day weekend? Did you get to spend any time out on the on the patio? Yeah, and I'm, uh, my wife Amanda and I are in the middle of planting uh, grass seed in this very tiny oh, wow. plot of dirt that we have under our care. Um, so I'm just like, I, I have a newfound appreciation for trying to grow anything. <laughs> As do I. So I took a vacation day two weeks ago and planted zucchinis and squash and tomatoes in my family's garden. And then the next week, a deer jumped over like the 10 foot fence and ate all the squash. And it was very upsetting. Ah, That is upsetting. (laughs) Well, I think we should say prayers for all of our crops uh, this coming week. (laughs) What are we drinking this week, Zach? So this week, at the request of one of the guests this week, Angelo Canto, we're drinking pineapple gin and tonics, and we're using Tommy Rotter's gin from our friends, the Tomzaks in Buffalo. They sent us uh, some Tommy, some Buffalo gin uh, for a theology on tap that we did for the One Jesuit Buffalo group there. So we are continuing to benefit from the uh, <laughs> alcohol that has been delivered to our doorstep. So Indeed. cheers, and Ashley. And perfect, refreshing drink for our new summer weather. Cheers. Amen. And who are we talking to this week? This week, we're talking to Emma Green. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers politics, policy, and religion. And I must say, she is one of my favorite writers on religion. She really is essential uh, reading for anyone interested in the intersection of religion and politics in the United States. Yeah, and she's had a number of pieces during the coronavirus pandemic that have shed new light or added nuance to the conversation in some way. But we really wanted to focus on one story in particular with her about Orthodox Jewish women who are struggling with whether or not they can visit mikvahs safely during the pandemic. Right. So these are ritual pools that uh, Orthodox Jewish women and, and other Jewish women use um, as part of a um, purity ritual. And it's, you know, obviously during the pandemic, there are concerns about personal and public health with regards to these um, public spaces. So we're very excited to talk to Emma. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So on Sunday, Pope Francis called on Catholics to take part in a year-long celebration of Laudato Si. Yeah, so this was a surprise announcement, and it came on the fifth anniversary of the publication of Laudato Si, um, a document in which Pope Francis said he sought to, quote, draw attention to the cry of the earth and the poor. Um, And I think 
part of the reason we're having this big push on the fifth anniversary is the reception of the encyclical has been a little uneven. Some parishes have really embraced it and tried to implement the teachings uh, with regards to environmental um, friendly policies and parishes and study groups and that sort of thing. But other places, it's kind of not made a big splash. So with this new initiative, the Pope is calling on all Catholics and people of goodwill um, to move from reflection on this encyclical and prayer about it um, to action to protect our common home. Yeah, it's funny. We talked about this in my men's group at my parish, um, just blood out to see in general. And I, I was curious. And so I just pulled everybody there, if they had even known that this document existed. And it was about, I would say, 60-40, 60 pro- did not know that Pope Francis had written this thing, and uh, 40 had some experience with it. But that's really surprising, especially given that the environment is such a huge priority, especially for young people as a social issue. Right. Um, so with this new initiative, the Vatican has also issued a prayer that we can all say during this uh, year of what he's calling ecological conversion. And one of the things the prayer does is call attention to the interconnectedness um, between the health of our of our earth, the common home, and um, our personal health, especially those um, who are poor and most vulnerable to the um, changes in the environment. Um, so in the prayer, he calls, he asks God to help us show creative solidarity as we confront the consequences of the global pandemic, which has really shown us just how interconnected we all are. So we will link to that whole prayer in the show notes. What's our next story, Ashley? So America Media had a interview with Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases this week, um, in which he weighed in on the opening of churches. Right. He spoke to America's national correspondent, Michael O'Loughlin, who was on the show last week talking about this. And Dr. Fauci gave a number of recommendations for churches to follow that largely mirrored some of the the CDC guidelines that are out there. Um, Among them, prisoners should wear masks. Uh, they should be socially distant, and there should not be any singing. Right. Um, but I think the toughest piece of advice to come out of this interview with Mike uh, is that he said we should pre- we should hold off from taking communion, and and not just via the cup. He he thinks that even the host, when taken on the hand, um, might present too great a risk to take, especially in areas that were really hard hit by the coronavirus pandemic. Right. This is uh, big news, especially as you know, different parishes are starting to open up. I saw that in Maryland, there was an order to try and ban uh, reception of communion. And this is going to present a whole bunch of sort of legal ecclesial challenges on figuring out what's the right way, what's the safe way to come back to worship, which is really tough because I know that a lot of Catholics are missing the sacraments really deeply. Right. And so I think the takeaway from this interview um, and from what we've been hearing from public health officials and church leaders is that even as we reopen churches, we're not going back to normal anytime soon. It's not going to look like church in you know January of 2020. It's going to be something different. Right. Which leads us to our next segment where we wanted to talk about an article that appeared in America this past week called Learning to Love Lay-Led Liturgies in Quarantine While Missing the Mass. And it was written by Angelo Canta, who uh, you may recognize from the credits of past shows. He uh, used to be the engineer on Jesuitical. 
Yes, he was a former Joseph A. O'Hare Fellow at American Media. Uh, I guess that was three years ago now. Um, mm-hmm. And he's been at Boston College for the past two years. Um, and we thought this was this piece was a really good way to think about, you know, what we've learned during this time when we couldn't gather together um, at Mass like we've been used to. Um, and, you know, maybe some of the uh, graces and blessings that have come from that um, and what we could take over into the future. Welcome to Jesuitical, Angelo. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Hello. Thanks so much for coming back to the podcast and on this side of the mic. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a little bit of a reunion, a little bit different. Not sure to, yeah. how to deal with it. We are, we are still in dispersion, uh, which Correct. is what you refer to your uh, Sunday uh, liturgies, lay-led liturgies that you wrote about in the recent piece for America Mag. Uh, could you just describe uh, how these zoom liturgies came about and what they look like now yeah um so they really sort of came about uh not a zoom liturgy right away um when cardinal o'malley uh said that he was going to suspend all masses in boston my friends and i uh still wanted to gather on sundays to have some sort of worship some sort of way to honor that it was a sunday and so we got together and put together um a liturgy of the word using that Sunday's readings. And it felt lacking, but it still felt good. And it still felt nourishing. Um, but then a week later, uh, things had changed pretty drastically. A lot of us had moved away. Um, and we weren't allowed to gather in groups of more than five anymore. So we went to Zoom. And so fast forward to, gosh, it's been like 11 weeks now. Um, we've had Sunday liturgies on Zoom for... Um, every Sunday since then. And what, what do these liturgies include? Um, are you you're doing readings or singing? What, what does it look like? Yeah, so um, we didn't try to reinvent the wheel. Um, I think what felt sort of most r- real and maybe most natural to a lot of us was having the same structure that a Sunday Mass would be like, but with a lot of the elements missing. So we start off with an opening song. Um, There's the first reading and the second reading that are normal. Then we have a gospel. And then instead of a priest giving a homily, we have one of our uh, lay friends prepare a reflection um, and preach for a few minutes. And then we sort of just open it up to the rest of the people that are there, kind of like a Bible study, to give their own reflections, to see how the scriptures are touching them um, or speaking to them in um, in their lives in quarantine. And then so we end with the prayer for spiritual communion instead of the Eucharist. And I think this is what hurts every time, but it still feels like it's giving me the space to to work out what my feelings are um, trying to worship in the pandemic. What do you mean by it, that part hurts? I think when liturgy is very good, when the mass is really great and super nourishing, Everything feels like it's cohesive and um, flows into each other. And I think we have all of that. A lot of us are uh, students of theology, or a lot of us have um, some interaction with planning uh, liturgies or planning worship. And so a lot of what we do feels seamless. But then when we get to the place where the, the liturgy of the Eucharist would begin, and there isn't that. And there isn't a priest, and we're not, and I, and I, all of a sudden remember that we're not in a church building. It kind of snaps me back into the reality of the pandemic. 
you quote a friend in the piece um, who, after one of these liturgies, says like, "That was great, but but was it real?" Which I think is a qu- it's a question I had. Like, does this quote unquote count as like because it's not the mass, and you're not trying to make it the mass? Um, so I'm wondering, like, yeah, what does it mean when we ask? Does it count? Is it real? Um, and what makes this a liturgy instead of a maybe like a prayer group or something like that? Yeah, I think those are all good questions. Um, that friend who asked that question was really, I think, hitting on what a lot of us were feeling but didn't necessarily want to say out loud. Um, but in terms of counting, you know, like as Catholics, we have this thing called the Sunday obligation. And it's basically just an understanding that as Catholics, we are obliged, we are um, invited to worship every week together, every Sunday together in the Mass. When we don't have that, when we don't have the Mass available to us regularly, there's a little bit of a different kind of negotiation that has to happen in terms of what we can um, and what we feel like doing. Um, In terms of things counting, uh, as I wrote in the article, a lot of bishops, and including my bishop, have um, dispensed us from our Sunday obligations. Nobody is required to be attending Mass once a week anymore. So I think moving away from the idea that it has to look a certain way and it has to be a certain thing for it to count for Sundays has been a grace of this uh, time of pandemic. In terms of your question about the liturgy and, and why we call it a liturgy, I think it's a good question. So at sort of at its root, the liturgy is just an old Greek word that means the work of the people. It means it's something that people do as a public declaration of worship. So like the church has its liturgy, capital L, that is the mass. And that's sort of the thing that maybe most of us are familiar with as being liturgical. But we also have all of these sort of more lowercase l liturgies and liturgical actions that include things like the liturgy of, of the hours, which is uh, a daily prayer that actually everyone is is invited into. And it includes I, what I would consider, it includes what my little community celebrates every week, a liturgy of the word um, that might not be the capital L liturgy of the church at the moment, but still is um, a prayer that we can all do communally. So the, to answer your question shortly, is it a liturgy or a prayer group? I think it's both. I think it is both liturgical because it is public worship, and it's it feels intimate like a prayer group would. One of the things that I found really tough about trying to live stream or watch a live stream mass is that it just feels so distant. And I was struck by your liturgy's intention on having it be sort of in real time, right? And so encouraging people who are present to sort of, you know, be seen by other people and also participate. Is that is that made a difference, do you think? I think so. And and some friends have made that clear to me. And I think it's true in my life that there's a great joy when I'm able to see a church and see priests who are my friends who I know celebrate the Mass. But there is that distance because they can't see me. And they can't see my reactions to the scripture or how I try but fail to sing the songs, that kind of thing. And I we have that in our Zoom liturgies. We're able to affect one another um, with our facial expressions and the way that we interact with each other. Um, and, you know, when, we, when folks share their own 
uh, scripture reflections, you can see a little bit of what they're dealing with, what they're concerned about in the world, what speaks to them. And I think that's what feels the most nourishing in this moment, that I, I don't feel alone for that hour on a Sunday. I feel very deeply connected to people and their fears and anxieties, but also their joys. Yeah. So as we're talking, churches are, if they haven't already reopened, they're they're making the plans to start slowly reopening. Um, and I'm wondering how you're thinking about how these liturgies um, may continue or not. Um, and, you know, what your experience of having uh, doing church without a priest uh, has taught you and what from that you might want to carry forward. Yeah. To sort of just answer that last question about what what doing church without a priest taught me, um, it's given me like a very sincere appreciation for how difficult it is to run a parish. We don't have a lot of the things that a lot of parishes have to deal with, like paying for bills and electricity and that kind of thing. But it is it is very complicated to make sure that um, people have access to the link and we have a schedule of presiders and preachers and that the readings um, are correct and all of this. And it's all sort of like the administrative stuff gets really complicated. And so I have this just this deeper appreciation for all of the background things that happen in a church that I take for granted when I show up on a Sunday for Mass. In terms of what our Zoom liturgies will look like as churches continue to open, I think we're still definitely going to be continuing to meet online until we're able to meet together in person in a safe way. I don't think any of us have lost the hunger for real communion and real Eucharistic celebration with one another in person, but it doesn't take away from the reality of the worship that we're experiencing together on Zoom. And so I'm certainly very wary of trying to think that, you know, next Sunday, if the parish down the street opens again, that it'll be the same. It will be exactly what I experienced as a consolation going to Mass every week before the pandemic. And so sort of being aware that that won't be the same, that that won't be that I might not even actually be able to receive the Eucharist um, properly and, and safely gives me a little bit of pause and, and makes me want to sort of keep worshiping with this community until it's safe to go back. Angelo, thank you so much for joining us uh, for the segment. The article is Learning to Love Lay-Led Liturgies in Quarantine While Missing the Mass. I miss you, and I hope that we can <laughs> gather together again soon. I hope so, too. Thank you for having me. This has been a delight. Thanks, Angela. Joining us from New York City is Emma Green. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers politics, policy, and religion. Welcome to Jesuitical, Emma. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, it's, it's such a pleasure. Uh, I follow your work religiously um, yes. at the Atlantic, <laughs> and so we're we're very um, excited to just you know pick your mind about kind of the trends um, and changes you're seeing in the religious landscape um, in the United States with the coronavirus pandemic. But before we get big 
picture. Um, I'm hoping we can start with a, a small community that you you did a story on back in April. Um, mm-hmm. A group of Orthodox Jewish women who are facing this really difficult uh, choice to make between upholding their religious commitments um, and protecting their own personal health and safety. Um, so could you talk to us a little bit about the ritual um, that takes place at mikvahs and what, what the choices uh Jewish women are facing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so when I was thinking about ways to cover the COVID-19 outbreak, I immediately was, was thinking about communities where people would be facing real dilemmas, a hard choice between following some of the public health guidelines that have been released and protecting themselves and their families, but then also these religious rituals that are really central to their lives. And I was immediately wondering how women in Orthodox Jewish communities would navigate this ritual, which is immersion in a mikvah, which is a bath of at least partially fresh water that's used after women go through their menstrual cycle. And they have to immerse before they can start having sex again um, with their partners. And this, of course, poses all sorts of challenges during a time of outbreak because uh, women share these spaces. They're typically public spaces uh, where women do a lot of preparation. They take showers, they wash their faces, and they also go into these pools, which are usually in windowless rooms that are pretty uh, stuffy, that don't have that great of ventilation um, that other women have been inside of, and they immerse naked in a pool of water. So I'm immediately thinking to myself as a reporter, how are women going Going to navigate this choice because in Judaism, certain types of Orthodox Judaism, this ritual is considered so fundamental that Jewish communities will build a mikvah before they build a synagogue when they move to a new place. They'll pay for a mikvah construction before they pay to buy a Torah, the scrolls um, that that talk about um, sort of the the foundational books of of the Jewish Hebrew Bible. So this isn't something that they can sort of just like set aside for the time being. That's right. For women who are getting their periods and who really believe that mikvah immersion is necessary before they can resume sexual relations after they get their periods, this is just non-negotiable. And so there are a lot of people who really face the challenge. Do they um, make the choice to stop going to the mikvah, but then say maybe for three months or six months, however long this goes on, they're just not going to have sex with their husbands. And moreover, maybe not even touch their husbands, sleep in the same bed with their husbands. Some people don't pass objects back and forth. Um, So that's a huge pressure on a relationship and on a family when you're already in quarantine or for women who are currently trying to get pregnant, uh, women and their partners. You know, that's a whole lot of time uh, to try to step out of um, these cycles of fertility if you're really, really wanting to, to have a family and to keep going with that. Um, that's a big amount of time and uncertainty to embrace that choice. And then on the flip side, you have women who are facing the choice of maybe going out and immersing when they don't feel comfortable doing so, um, or when they feel that it, it might involve some of risk. So um, this was a really interesting story to report in part because there wasn't really a clear answer and different women I talked to were thinking about it with a lot of different factors going into their choices. 
I think about this in comparison to the Mass, where as Catholics, we had our, our obligation to go to Mass every Sunday um, dispensed uh, for the duration of this pandemic. And so we're kind of immune from some of the like really hard choices of like keeping our religious commitments um, and looking out for the, the health of the community and our families. I'm wondering what... Do you see, um, what's like the emotional toll you've seen on the communities because of this? Well, it, there's an important piece of context here, which is that especially in New York and New Jersey, Orthodox Jewish communities have been hit enormously hard by the COVID-19 outbreak. There have been really high death tolls in communities in Brooklyn and Queens and some in New Jersey. And these communities are suffering. Um, They're suffering from loss. They're suffering from illness and certainly from fear that they may be affected by this outbreak. And on top of that, they're also being, you know, criticized publicly for, you know, some of the actions they've taken, like gathering for funerals and that sort of things. That's like another component to it, right? Absolutely. You know, there was sort of one image of the Orthodox Jewish community that was held out, which is these pictures that we see of people gathering in the streets for the funeral of a major rabbi or at the beginning for some weddings. And this did happen. These are true gatherings that have been documented that were dangerous. They posed a threat to those communities. But I think the one of the challenges here is that the vast majority of people, especially in these communities in Brooklyn or Queens, um, to my understanding, are really strictly following the social distancing guidelines and staying home. And nonetheless, they have been faced with a lot of hardship in their communities. And one of the things that they're navigating among many that families are navigating is this choice around mikvah use. I'm wondering if you were able to get a sense of some of the theological quandaries that this might like bring up personally for uh, some of the women and uh, mikvah providers in the sense that is God asking us to do something that would be harmful to myself or my community? It has to be a a struggle to kind of to deal with, right? Mm, That's a great question. You know, I had one woman who lives in Riverdale, which is in the Bronx, north of Manhattan, um, who is a member of an Orthodox Jewish community, but is also an Orthodox sex therapist. Um, and we had a really fascinating conversation. And, and she observed to me that for most women in Orthodox communities or women who use mikvahs, not all women who use mikvahs are Orthodox, um, violating the, the rules around mikvah would be similar for a Jew to eating pork, to violating some of the most fundamental guidelines around food or other kinds of observance. And so I think the questions that women have been talking about about on social media, certainly, and in my interviews, is not necessarily, do we think this rule is correct or this rule is negotiable, but rather, how can I live with this struggle? What's the right way to deal with this burden? Because either way, it's a really big burden on women to have to either take their fear and anxiety and swallow it and go to the mikvah because they think that's what they need to do, or to choose to stay home and endure this burden of being um, unable to have a kind of family relationship that's really, really essential during a really emotionally difficult time. So I think it's just a, a huge emotional and relational burden that these women are having to navigate in, in this larger context of loss. Yeah. And one thing 
I think about in this, uh, in terms of this community, but also a lot of religious communities is how we talk about like essential services or essential actions and how it can be difficult if you're outside of the religion to, to look at this and be like, well, why can't you just stop doing that for a couple of months? Like, what's the big deal? So how, like in general, how do you feel like you may, you know, the government or more secular minded people, um, should or could think about these decisions maybe with more empathy or understanding i don't know just trying to like bridge that divide between um religious religious commitments and what you know what more secular people might see from the outside perhaps readers of the atlantic might be reading (laughs) (laughs) you might be surprised the atlantic has a diverse readership plenty of people who are religious among the the ranks of our readers but i think your point is a really good one and we've seen this playing out not just in the context of these orthodox jewish communities and rituals like mikveh use but more broadly about the role of church in society or the role of religious organizations in society a lot of people have been arguing to really get those churches reopened, to get religious function restored because it's an essential service. Many people have been talking about the way that liquor stores, for example, have stayed open and yet churches have been closed down and this sort of disparate uh, perception there about what constitutes an essential service. And I would just say from my interviews, talking to people who have in various communities been dealing with a shutdown of religious life or, or an almost total shutdown of religious life for the past eight to 10 weeks, you know, they feel that in a really core way. And I think a lot of people who are religious in the United States from across a variety of traditions would say going to church or going to prayers at the mosque or going to pray at the synagogue or immerse in a mikvah, that's as essential or more essential to me than going to the grocery store. It's a fundamental core part of my life. It's uh, following a set of rules or a set of teachings that really guide who I am and who my community is. So I do think that it's important to to have that bridge, as, as you put it, Ashley, to make sure that people who don't have these traditions in their life understand that they are really essential and feel not optional for many people in the United States. As your piece points out, not there's not one monolithic response even within um, a pretty self-contained community. Uh, I'm wondering, what are some of the other internal debates in e- either that faith, either the Orthodox faith tradition or other faith traditions that people are having about how to reopen, when to reopen, Um, what's the best way to go about moving forward? Mm -hmm. Well, to talk about some of the conversations happening right now, we have seen guidance from the president, guidance from the CDC, some from state governments, trying to help churches and other religious organizations think through these sort of gradual reopening processes that are beginning. And there's a huge spectrum of how religious organizations are dealing with this. Some are staying closed indefinitely because they think that's the way to be good stewards of the health of the people who come to worship with them. Some have never closed and have either been overtly or quietly defying some of the government structures put in place. And then there's a huge range of debate 
in between of churches that are trying to put in place new processes for squirting hand sanitizer as you walk into church, for distancing people in the pews six feet apart to make sure that nobody's getting too close, for how you take communion if that's part of your church tradition. And so I think we're in this really interesting period right now of a lot of redefinition and churches just trying to figure out what they can do. And I think this is true in church. I think it's true in synagogue. I think it's true for the mosque, for so, so many different religious organizations that do have in-person worship as part of what they do. This is just a wild, wild west. As a pastor just said to me on the phone a few minutes ago, there is no course for this in seminary. They do not train pastors for how to deal with a situation like this. So I think everyone's kind of flying blind and just trying to figure it out as they go. I have a question about the response to some people, and I think I would be inclined to agree with this perspective. A lot of the response feels very political and partisan, right? The way that you, even within a religious community, the way that you vote is maybe a a good indication of how you're approaching reopening. Has that, do you think that's correct or it needs nuanced a little bit or what have you been seeing? I think that's true to a certain extent, but I would add a couple of other thoughts. I think geography is a huge factor. Um, There are many states where COVID, thankfully, has not been as much of a problem in the population, especially states that are more rural or who have put in place um, public health measures that have really flattened the curve. And I think the situation for religious organizations in those places is really different than, for example, in New York City, where I'm calling you from, where, as we know, the outbreak has been the worst uh, in as it has in the entire country. Um, the, the factors there, I think, are, are different. Um, I think the second is just generally speaking, in terms of polling that I've seen, anecdotal conversations, trying to sort of get a sense of the lay of the land without myself being able to visit every church or synagogue in the United States in the past eight to 10 weeks. Um, And my perception is that the vast majority of organizations have shut down either in full or in part. And they have also with reopening been wanting to exercise caution and wisdom to be really respectful of the fact that any action that they take could have a negative impact on their parishioners and congregations. So I don't think there's a simple story to tell here, which is Republicans hate grandmas and callously never close down and callously will reopen. And Democrats are perfect citizens of CDC guidelines or whatever story it might be. Um, I don't think that this has fallen out in that way. In fact, I think there's just this really interesting kind of gray zone that a lot of churches and organizations fall into of trying to figure out what suits their population, what are the most winsome steps to take and the wisest steps to take um, to make sure that they're really, really seriously handling the possibility for an outbreak in their community. Yeah. One thing we've started talking about at America Magazine and like the, the New York Times recently had that uh, front page spread with the names of the almost 100,000 people have, who have died is how to how to mark this national tragedy. Um, I'm wondering if that those you've had those conversations with uh, different faith communities about how they're thinking about, you know, on an individual and larger level, um, 
grieving and and helping um, their congregants or congregations come to terms with the tremendous loss that we've experienced. I think this is such an important question. And it's so important in part because the grieving has only begun. The New York Times cover that you were talking about, the front page, is just a small fraction of the many thousands of Americans who have died, who come from all different walks of life. And by and large, as we know, because of social distancing, because of health risks, families have not been able to actually mourn their lost loved ones, let alone the broader communities that they're part of, the churches that they're members of, the synagogues that they attend, the mosques that they're part of, these gatherings just haven't been able to happen. And so we've seen things like shivas over Zoom. In the Jewish community, there's a mourning ritual where the family, the immediate family of someone who dies will sit on a low stool and people will normally come and bring them food and offer condolences and be with them for a, for several days of, of mourning. And you see that happening over Zoom. That's totally different than the in-person experience. This is true of funerals or funeral masses where um, priests have maybe been able to gather with one or two family members, but ultimately they have to stand far apart from one another. And many, many people who would love to be present haven't been able to be so. So I think that um, what we're going to see potentially as America starts to reopen is this delayed onset of these grieving rituals, which are so essential in religious life and communal life that just haven't been able to take place. And I know that there are many people who are hungering for that, to be able to process that loss and really be able to honor those who have died in a way that they haven't been able to for months. Not just with mourning, but it seems like community and gathering together in person is such an essential part of religion that I'm wondering how you see the sort of the aftermath of all of this. How is that going to be affected from here on out? Are are we going to see that shift in any way or are we go, going to return to something that looks closer to what we've we've been used to? You know, I think it's really hard to tell. As strange as it may sound, I do think that we're in the early days of the COVID-19 crisis. We've been through an acute phase and now we're entering a more more long-term phase, but I think we're a long way from being done with the outbreak. And as a result, I think it's very difficult to know what the religious and communal landscape is going to look like. Um, this is in part because I think the financial toll will be huge for for religious communities, especially smaller communities that really live on a shoestring budget that are going to be really pressured by this. I think the way that we're able to gather in big groups is still very up in the air and may well change if there's a second wave of the outbreak or a third or a fourth, God forbid. And I just don't know that we are going to have a sense of of what the great after is or what the next phase is until we're living in it. So um, in other words, stay tuned. And certainly that's something that I'm planning to report on myself in the coming weeks and months. Yes. And we will definitely be following your work on that. Um, thank you so much for the reporting, reporting you do all the time, uh, especially during the coronavirus pandemic. It's just been so insightful and 
um, empathic. But before we let you go, we do have one final question that we ask all of our guests. Uh, right. If you could canonize one person, uh, Catholic or not, living or dead, fictional <laughs> or real, uh, who would it be and why? <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is on the spot. I feel such pressure to come up with a good answer. <laughs> good. It's meant, it's meant to have that effect. Wow. I, I'm sweating over here. I... I I, it's not even just because New York air conditioners don't work very well. I, I really feel the pressure is on. Okay, I'm gonna give you an I'm gonna give you an answer here. And I would just add for a caveat that hopefully this would be an answer in context, which is this is my my producing it at the last minute, not answer for all time. I can go back into the history archives and revise when I come up with something infinitely more thoughtful. Well, the next time you come on the show, you can you can give a better answer if you're. Or a different answer <laughs> okay, great. I'll I'll take that as a as a um, bargain. But there is so in my neighborhood in New York City, like across New York, um, people have been clapping at seven p.m. to thank the healthcare workers and other people who have continued to go to work to keep the city functioning in a time when it's basically been shut down. And obviously it's been hit, hit very, very hard by the outbreak. And there's this one guy in my neighborhood who must be an out of work wedding DJ or somebody who just throws really great parties who every night at 7 PM plays uh New York, New York, you know, uh, start spreading the news. Start, he plays that at 7 p.m. And so in, in the spirit of our communal coming togetherness as a neighborhood, I think that guy, whatever his name is, should be canonized for always keeping us in the good tunes and a little providing a little bit of good cheer at a time that otherwise has been very dark and challenging. Uh, I love that. You have now joined uh, Zach Davis as someone who breaks into spontaneous song on Jesuitical. <laughs> it's an honor. I'm, I'm glad to be in good ranks. It is funny, though, I, on my block, too. I'm I'm in Park Slope, um, and there's a, there's like one person in particular who leads the charge every day with like uh, with their, their pots and pans, and so uh -huh. no one really starts until, until she starts. Um, but well, so there, the case for canonization has been opened on several fronts then. I think so. Well, St. New York, New York guy, uh, pray for us. Um, <laughs> Emma, uh, people can follow your work at The Atlantic and on Twitter. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. So good to talk with you. Thank you for having me on. housekeeping this week so we'll just go straight into consolations and desolations the part of our show where we talk about where we found god this week and where it was harder to find god what do you have zach i have a desolation this week um so i i, I can't even say attended uh one of one of my good college friends uh last week lost his mother and since people weren't able to gather for any type of funeral uh they they did a live stream of a of a small private service um, at the funeral home, and it, it's hard to talk about this as a desolation because it's not even it, it's not even my pain, right? I can't even imagine what my friend is going through. But I remember if there was any consolation when I lost my grandma a few months back, it was it was so much of it was from being able to gather with my friends and my family and just being able to hug someone and 
just sort of knowing, even though I knew that there were other friends also, you know, watching this funeral alongside with me, couldn't see them. I felt very alone. Um, I felt just sad. And so all of those things feeling alone and sort of hopeless and th- that's desolation, right? I could, even as I was trying to pray for my friend and his mom, I have, was really made aware of how isolated we all are right now. And so that was really desolating this past week. Yeah, that's really hard. Yeah. What do you have, Ashley? Um, I have a consolation that's also kind of rooted in an experience of of loss, though a little less fresh than than yours and your friends. Um, so I've talked on the show before about uh my f- good college friend um dying unexpectedly back in December and. Last week, I, I have this group of college friends who've been getting together during quarantine once a week to do like a bar trivia over Zoom. Um, and so last week, I was texting with them about uh, you know what we were gonna what the themes were this week or whatever. And just like in the middle of texting them, I was just like overcome with this grief when I realized that John should have been in this group text and he should have been in trivia and he should have been in our lives still. Um, and I, it just kind of like struck me really hard and I, you know, just kind of lost it. Um, but then like once, once the initial grief of just like realizing he wasn't there and that, you know, I couldn't talk to him and he was like this brilliant scientist and I really just wanted to talk to him about everything that was going on. Um, I realized that like, you know, he wasn't, he's not physically present, but like I even just like having his memory kind of pop back into my life in this, in this, um, in this way was, I, I was able to remember how much I loved him and, and, and think about, oh, like if John were here, this is what he would be saying, or just being reminded of the love that I did have for him and still have for him, um, in the middle of this ended up, um, being, being a moment of consolation for me, uh, because, I, I'm sure your friend who lost his mom will experience like even when they're gone, you can still um, some some part of that love is still there um, and you can kind of keep going back to that. Well, um, so so, yeah, it was it was a it was a weird experience of consolation because it was, you know, at, at once an experience of grief, but also um, in, in the memory of of my friend uh, finding some consolation. Amen. That's beautiful. All right, Ashley, take us out of here. All right. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Oblate School of Theology is a Catholic graduate school that provides theological education for the Church's mission and ministry in the world. Inspired by the charism of the missionary Oblates of Mary Immaculate, Oblate School of Theology educates, forms, and renews men and women to preach the gospel to the most abandoned. 
OST prepares Catholic priests, deacons, seminarians, non-Catholic clergy, women religious, and lay ministers through the integration of pastoral experience and theological study. Visit ost.edu to learn more about program options. That's ost.edu.